can be very, very hard to have a healthy marriage, to have a vital and thriving marriage. It takes a lot of work on both, both members' part. It's not easy. And yet singleness is not easy either. They're both difficult. There's no easy option in this life. There should be. There ought to be. But we're fallen, and the world is not what it was designed to be. It's, it's damaged. It's broken. And some of you know that very, very well. Some of you know what it's like when a marriage falls apart. Some of you know what it's like when you're cheated on. Some of you know what it's like when you've cheated and you've blown it. Some of you know what it's like to be alone and to wonder if you're going to stay that way. Uh, Jesus, in the passage we're getting ready to look at, it's in Matthew chapter 19. In your pew Bible, it's page 1528, 1528. It's a passage in which Jesus is cornered by religious authorities who are trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. And so they ask him about divorce in the Hebrew scriptures, in the, in the Mosaic law. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, they're trying to trick him by bringing up a reference from Deuteronomy. But in this, they're not really just talking about marriage and divorce. Because Jesus in his answer also speaks about the calling to singleness, to celibacy. And in his answer, he also gives a revolutionary paradigm for understanding the Old Testament, indeed a paradigm for approaching our own relationship with God and what it is that he really wants in your life, single or married. This is Matthew 19. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 to 12, if you would follow along now as I read the word of Christ. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee And he went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees, that's some religious leaders, came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis there. He continues, So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to Jesus, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better to not marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those for whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of our Lord. 
What do we notice about the Pharisees, about the religious leaders? They're trying to corner Jesus, and yet what we see about their paradigm is they are fixated on this issue of what the rules are regarding divorce in the Law of Moses, in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament. The passage was Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And there was a debate between two Jewish schools of thought, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And and between them, there was a debate over what exactly Moses meant when he said that if a man is displeased with his wife and he finds something, you know, unclean about her, uh, he can send her away, but he has to give her a certificate of divorce if he does that. And... The school of Shammai, which Jesus was agreeing with, was saying that he has to find something indecent about her. It's got to be marital unfaithfulness or some kind of major violation of of marriage. The the covenant has to be broken already in order to send a wife away, and then you give her a certificate of divorce for her protection. And the school of Hillel said, no, it says that if a man finds something displeasing with his wife, and that would mean by any reason he can divorce freely, all he has to do is make sure she gets this piece of paper. And so they're debating over which of these schools of thought is is really the appropriate one, but they're both focused on the rules. They're both asking the question, how far can I go before I get in trouble? They're both asking the legalistic question. First main point, what is the legalistic question whenever you find yourself in a difficult situation, difficult singleness, difficult marriage, difficulties at work, financial difficulties, difficulties in relationships, difficulties with an addiction or with an integrity issue. Always what it boils down to is the legalist always asks, what do the rules say I can get away with? How far can I run from God before I've run too far? How bad can I be before it's too much? And that's how they're approaching this. Now, Moses certainly regulated divorce. He did require a certificate of divorce. If, if a man is going to get rid of his wife, he gives a policy, a procedure, in order to protect the woman. Uh, you know, otherwise, what he would do is he would drive her into the desert and, and tie her up and leave her there. And so Moses required that you do it properly. You give her a certificate. What does the certificate do? It was a testimonial to the innocence of the woman, that she has been abandoned by her husband, he has expelled her, he has broken the covenant with her and dissolved it, and she is no longer bound. It meant that she was therefore legally free to remarry should she uh, find a new husband. It meant that she would be free to go back to her family, and their honor would not be impugned by taking her back in because her husband had wronged her by divorcing her. It protected her reputation. Otherwise, tongues will wag. They will say she's an adulteress. They will say she's abandoned her marriage. They will say all sorts of horrible things about her, as, as the ancient world always did about unattached women. And so it was there to protect her reputation. Before God and witnesses, this piece of paper says, I am righteous in this matter. And it protected the woman from what otherwise would be her only chance for survival. She would starve to death, or she would be forced into prostitution. And so Moses, the Old Testament, said, yes, we're regulating this. And regulating it, though, 
was God really telling you by regulating divorce and saying that you have to issue this certificate absolving your wife and declaring her innocence? Was in regulating it, God really saying he wants you to upgrade your wife? You see, the legalist's question is, how far can I go? How much can I get away with? What do the rules say, and how can I work around the rules to make sure I'm technically not breaking one when Jesus is saying it was not that way from the beginning? You've got to step back and ask, what is the real heart of God in this? What does God actually want? Not how far can I get, out, get away, not, not how much can I do, not what rules do I have to tiptoe around, but does he want you to abandon your wife? By regulating it, God wasn't saying he wanted it. Because what's missing here, when it's all about the rules, when it's all about finding out how, what, what you need to be careful not to do, what's missing is a relationship. And not just a relationship with your spouse. What's missing is a relationship with God, where you're actually seeking his face and saying, God, what do you want from my marriage? What would it look like if this was right what ought it to be? This is true with every area of our lives. It's, it's, it's you know, true in your marriage. It's true with your sexuality. If you're asking technically what are the rules that I have to be careful not to break, instead of asking, God, what did you give me my sexuality for and what will it look like when I am right with this? What does healthy look like and aiming for that? God, what is your heart? What is your will here? how you manage conflicts or what you do with your money, not asking, gosh, technically, how many decimal points do I have to move over? How much money do I technically have to give? One cent less is unfaithfulness and one cent more is given more than I have to. If that's what you're really thinking, you're missing a relationship with God. We are actually asking God, what would it look like for me to have the radical generosity and the freedom, the grace of liberality with the things that you have put at my disposal? how you talk about other people, your attitude toward the poor, your involvement in the life of the church, your devotional life, always asking God, what is the wisest means to the noblest end, not how much I can get away with. I remember one pastor back in Virginia who, uh, who uh, he was in northern Virginia, D.C. area, and he had talked to a guy who was a, an expert in counterfeiting. I don't know if he worked for a Bureau of Engraving and Printing or a probably FBI uh, and this pastor, Ron, asked him, so, you know, it's probably really interesting. You study all these different ways you can counterfeit a $20 bill, for example. And the guy responded, actually, we don't really study any of that. We study what a $20 bill is supposed to be. And everything that's not that is a fraud. Friends, are you studying what God wants marriage to be? Are you studying and learning what he wants your life to look like, what he wants your sexuality to look like, what he wants your relationship with money to look like, what he wants your friendships to look like, what he wants your attitude to the poor to look like. The legalist always asks, what are the rules so that I can get away with as much as possible? And Jesus is saying, you need to ask a different question because God doesn't want to be your Lord. He wants to be your Lord. He doesn't you know, want to be your consultant. Remember priests... Hindu priests in Karnataka that I was reading about in southwestern India, uh, how one man was interviewing them, and he asked them, you know, they work in their, their temple of their gods, and he asked them a question. He said, how many of you would want to spend time with your God except to get something from him? And not a one of them could raise his hands. 
because they dreaded their God. Their God was somebody they had to deal with in order to get the things and the blessings that they needed, but none of them actually wanted to be in the presence of their God any more than they had to be to get what they needed. Friends, if that's where your heart is with your God, then you might be very, very far from the kingdom of God, or you might be close to it, but you might not be in it yet because you're still relating to God based on rules, and you're still trying to avoid him and avoid his imprint on your life rather than asking Jesus' question, which is, what, what was it intended to be in the beginning? What did you design us for? What does it look like when it's right? The legalist question, what do the rules see I can get away with? And Jesus' point even about some of those Old Testament rules, second point, is that those rules in the Hebrew Bible don't even always reflect the heart of God. This is coming from Jesus. Did you notice what he says here? He say, you know, Moses permitted us to divorce. And he responds saying, Moses permitted you to divorce because of the hardness of your heart. But to permit something legally does not make it healthy and good morally or ethically. If everything that was wrong had the death penalty in ancient Israel, everyone would have been put to death. We're dealing with the civil laws of Moses, the, the case law. And, and there are all sorts of things that the Old Testament regulates that are not the heart of God, and they were never the heart of God, because Jesus says, go back to the beginning, go back to creation. What was marriage meant to be? He says it was meant to be a one-flesh union, the two becoming one flesh, the father, the, the, the husband leaving his mom and dad and clinging to his wife, this one flesh union physically, emotionally, spiritually, economically, in every way becoming one, letting each other in and ministering grace and love and mercy to one another. That's what it was meant to be. And he says in every area you can go back. And if, if the Old Testament seems to, to show something different, understand it's a concession, Jesus says, because of the hardness of our hearts. But you want to know the heart of God. You want to answer that question, what it was meant to be. He says, you've got to go back to the beginning. You see slavery regulated, indentured servitude, if you will, in the Old Testament. It was never the heart of God. And in the book of Revelation, those who deal in the slave trade are said to be condemned forever. Because it wasn't God's heart. You see polygamy in the Old Testament. It was never God's heart. You see divorce regulated. But that doesn't mean God ever intended for marriages to fall apart. got to ask the right question. What is God's heart for marriage? Jesus goes back to Genesis 2, can paint the vision of what marriage was meant to be, what this one flesh union looks like, this cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance where two people begin to start to even look alike. They start finishing each other's sentences. They begin to know what the other's thinking even before they vocalize it. Uh, where two people uh, are so joined together in a commitment of love, this incredible vision And to abandon a faithful spouse, Jesus is saying, it's not just violating a rule in the Old Testament. It's violating creation. It's violating shalom. It's violating what God intended in the beginning. And so Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not tear apart. You don't shatter it unless it's already been shattered. Jesus talks about marital unfaithfulness as a something that would make divorce not necessary but, but permissible and remarriage permissible. 
Uh, marital unfaithfulness probably certainly involves adultery. It probably involves more. Anything that would be fundamentally a covenant-breaking action. It's why St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 can talk about abandonment as a cause of divorce because like adultery, abandonment is breaking that one flesh union. Uh, it's why, uh, you know, certainly most of us in our denomination believe that abuse uh, can, can be a justification for divorce because, uh, you know, if you're trying to kill your spouse, then you are violating that one flesh union inherently. Um, and yet what Jesus is calling us to is, is a kind of covenantal relationship Uh, not a consumer relationship. So many of our relationships in our culture are consumer relationships. Uh, You know what it's like. You go to a particular grocery store. Why do you go to that grocery store? Because that grocery store gives you a product that you want to purchase, and it gives you a price that you are willing to pay. And if they change their product or if they change their their cost, what do you do? You, You go to a different grocery store. It's like that way with barbers. It's like that way with the people who change your oil. It's like that way with doctors. It's like that way with dentists. It's like that way with almost all of our relationships are basically consumer relationships in which we are purchasing the relationship because it gives us something we want at a cost we're willing to pay. And our vision for marriage that Jesus lays out here is fundamentally antithetical to that. He says it's not a consumer relationship for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, saying, I'm not just going to love you when you're young and healthy and funny and beautiful. I'm going to love you when you're old and when you're sick and when you're difficult. I'm not just going to love you now. I'm going to love you 50 years from now. I am going to be the person who changes your diaper. I am going to be the person who empties your bedpan. I'm going to be the person who forgives you when you sin against me. I'm going to be the person who opens my heart to show you my shame and will receive from you forgiveness and grace and love and commitment and covering. Not just temporary not just because I get something from it. The purpose, Jesus says. What does it look like when it's right? And this is true with any other area of your life. When you ask God, what do you want it to be? With marriage, he talks about the two becoming one flesh, the heart of God for marriage, that your marriage would reflect the beauty of the gospel, full disclosure and complete acceptance, just as Christ sees us fully disclosed and gives us complete acceptance. Not fighting over the, the crown, but fighting over the towel. Remember Josh Gottman in his marriage clinic talks about how where he's seen over 900 married couples, and this is not a Christian source, he's seen over 900 married couples go through this, and he's seen that he can, he can almost anticipate which ones will have healthy, thriving marriages decades of into the future and which ones are going to fail, either staying together but miserable or ending in divorce. And he said that it boils down to five hours in his experience as a counselor. Five hours a week is what makes the difference between a marriage that stays together and a marriage that fails. The five hours a week, he says, two minutes in the morning, parting, talking about what your day is going to be like, sharing what you expect And then at the end of the workday, spending 10 minutes each, 20 minutes total, sharing what happened in your day, what you went through, what it was like. Uh, 
And then somewhere along the day, spending five minutes together just mentioning what you admire about one another. Gosh, I really love that about you. You are so amazing. You're so good to me. Thank you. And then five minutes of affection a day. A hug, a snuggle, sitting on the couch with your legs crossing. Uh, That's it daily. That's all you need, he says. Two minutes in the morning, 20 minutes after the work day, five minutes of admiration, five minutes of infection, uh, of affection, not infection. That's something different. <laughs> you're going to get the five. You're going to get more than five of infection. But the point is you can have 22 hours a day of infection if you've got these few minutes. Why? Because what will enable you to fight well? What will enable you to love one another in the midst of conflict? What will enable you to bear with one another's failings? Because guaranteed you married a sinner if you're married, and they did too. But the one flesh union, it's what Jesus said right here in Matthew 19. It's what Moses said back in Genesis 2. The purpose of marriage, those who still focus on the purpose of marriage, the one flesh union, the shared life, the letting each other in. And then he says, two hours a week for a date night. That gets you from three hours to five hours a week. He says that in 900 couples, the ones who focus on what it's supposed to be, no matter how bad everything else is, they tend to survive and often thrive. And those who neglect the basic purpose of marriage, that one flesh union, they don't share their life together, they grow apart. Then no amount of counseling is going to be able to fix that because you've missed the purpose for which God gave you a spouse. I remember another study Uh, that showed that you could ask a series of something like 26 increasingly intimate questions of two total strangers. You put them across the table from each other, and they start asking these questions. They get increasingly intimate, and then their job is to stop everything, not say a word, put their phone down, and stare into each other's eyes without blinking for four minutes. And statistically the likelihood of developing feelings for one another is pretty, pretty high. Why? Intimacy, shared life. When did you stop staring into the eyes of your spouse? The gospel comes in to marriage, and it transforms us from duty to relationship, from heaviness to joy from performance to acceptance, from resentment to forgiveness, from law to love, from defensiveness to extravagance. And yet Jesus talks about all of this and goes back and paints this picture of what marriage was supposed to be with the footnote that you don't have an easy out because it's a lifetime commitment. And the disciples' response is what? Lord Jesus Christ, if I can't have an out then you would be crazy to ever get married. And we expect Jesus to hear that and to rebuke them and say, shame on them. You're devaluating a, you're devaluing a creation ordinance of God, but he doesn't. He doesn't even disagree with them. He simply says, there are people that God has called to not marry, but most cannot receive singleness. He says those who can receive it should receive it. Now, this is so different from what our culture expects because uh, we tend to view singleness as either extended adolescence, where you just never grow up, or virtual death penalty, 
where you will be miserable every day of your life until you die at the age of 97 alone, having cried for 75 of those years. Uh, And yet, we misperceive singleness. You know, in the city of St. Louis, the majority of parents are single. The majority of children born in St. Louis City don't have a father. Uh, Divorcees are single unexpectedly. Most of them didn't want it. Uh, widowers. You know, our, our expectation of what it means to not be married uh, is very often uh, unrealistic. And, and yet Jesus says that of those who are called to be single, there are three kinds. First, he says there are those who were born that way. Then he says there are those who were made that way by man. And then he says there are those who choose to remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom. He calls them eunuchs. Now, what is a eunuch? I don't have a slide. Uh, (laughs) It's already hot in here. Um, We tend to think a eunuch is something kind of freaky and weird, maybe one in a million freak show stuff. Eunuchs were actually very common in the ancient world. Um, Eunuchs were uh, people who were often vested with particular responsibility. Eunuchs were surgically castrated, uh, usually before adolescence in order to give them the unique ability to not have conflicted interests like somebody who's married would have a conflicted interest. For example, a eunuch would be given a position of power very often. It was a select group with responsibility. They might, for example, be put in charge of the king's harem. Why would a eunuch be put in charge of the king's harem? Because he doesn't have the conflict of interest that any other guy would have in charge of the king's harem. Uh, He might, for example, be put in charge of money. Why? Because a eunuch, not having descendants of his own, doesn't have anybody that he personally feels responsible to take care of, and so he's less likely to dip into the coffers in order to set aside something for his children and grandchildren. A eunuch, uh, they were very often put in charge of other servants. They were put in charge of other staff because the lack of conflicted interest came from the fact that they had one responsibility only, the responsibility of being loyal to their master. A lot of eunuchs, physical eunuchs in the Old Testament. Uh, Some would say that Daniel was a eunuch based on the Hebrew uh, description of him. Uh, Josephus certainly described not only Daniel as a eunuch, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, very likely eunuchs. You look at the training, they were put under the head of the eunuchs, the chief eunuch. They were given very specific diet, very specific programming in order to prepare them. It's very likely that Josephus, the Jewish historian, is right there. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about those who choose a kind of spiritual eunuchhood of giving up Uh, family, giving up a spouse and descendants in order to be focused on the mission of God. Uh, Paul says, I wish everyone could be single as I am, but some receive this gift and some others. Some are called to marriage, some are called to singleness, but Jesus says not everyone can receive the calling to be single. George Frederick Handel, J. Gresham Machen, John Stott, uh, eunuchs, for the kingdom of Jesus. How is this possible in a culture that's all about romance, that assumes that that 24-month feeling of elation that one gets when you fall in love not only 
does last forever but should last forever and that as soon as it's gone, you're entitled to move along, how can you give that up? Whether it's by being faithful to a marriage after the feelings have changed or being faithful as a single person, giving up the descendants and giving up the romance. It's only possible if there's someone who's done that for you. His name is Jesus, and he is the one who gave up marriage because there was somebody else who was needing care. Jesus, who gave all of that up. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of one who is young and in love. Imagine, if you will, the wedding day with the flowers and the candles and the rose petals on the ground and the cello and the violin and the big loud organ and the friends and the family and all the smiles and embraces and the tears of joy on a wedding day. The car parked outside waiting to whisk you away. The presents, the bows on all of the gifts, the cards with the expressions of love, the vows, the dress, the wedding party, the last-minute freak-out, the anxiety, then the exchange of rings and the promises and the cake and the embrace of arms that truly love you. And you put yourself in that position and you think of all the hopes and all the dreams and all the aspirations and all the longings that are bound up in the hope of that wedding day. And then what happens? You find yourself tiptoeing around their stinky underwear that they left on the floor, harsh words said, emotions, disturbances, arguments, and the reality sinks in that you are two sinners who have just tied yourself together forever. The reality is there's no spouse that can answer those longings and those aspirations Every marriage in human history since Adam and Eve has been disappointing on a certain level because you didn't marry Jesus, you didn't marry Jesus. You married a normal sinner like the rest of us. And yet those longings are still there. They're inbound longings to be adored by one outside of ourselves going back to the Garden of Eden when we were there and we were naked and there was no shame, continually being approved of by our Father who looked upon us with pleasure and delight and found nothing imperfect about us, who was proud of us, and we still long for that. And we look to a spouse to give that, friends, but the real spouse who alone can give that is named Jesus. He was the ultimate celibate who swore off marriage in order to be about his father's business, the ultimate eunuch for the kingdom of God, and yet his father's business was that he would take upon himself an unfaithful woman by the name of the church, that he would take her and he would wash her and he would make her clean and perfect her. And friends, that's you. Jesus is the ultimate spouse. He is the husband that you long for, the one whose approval you need, the one whose delight can make you complete and whole. John Preston in 1630 said, You are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Jesus, your spouse, covenanted to you, laying down his life to present you before God, holy, blameless, and without fault. I believe we've got some slides. We've got a slide here, a little girl. This little girl is named Kylie Lafferty. She's from Maricopa, Arizona. This was her just before her second birthday. Her mother, Emily Howard, says she was roaming through a Maricopa swap meet with her daughter when this little 22-month-old girl suddenly disappeared into the ground. 
the earth beneath this little girl literally opened up and sucked her down. It was a very brief scream. And then the girl was disappeared. She disappeared from sight. And nearby was a man, 28-year-old Henry Ricketts. We got a photo of him too. Henry Ricketts had just been released from prison two weeks earlier on drug and assault charges. He heard the mother's cry, crying out, My baby! My baby! And he rushed over and realized that little two-year-old Kylie had stepped on a flimsy rubber lid covering a septic tank on West Papago Road, and she had fallen straight down a full seven feet into an underground septic tank filled with water and human filth. Henry Ricketts squeezed through a 19-inch opening, not knowing what was down there or even how deep it might be. He dove in. After tearing off his shoes, he dove into the hole head first, and as he plunged beneath the surface, his mouth and his lungs began filling up with this filthy water and who knows what else. And as he inhaled it, he could feel no sign of little Kylie. He, he fished around for her, holding his breath as best he could in an environment that was devoid of air as well as light. And he pushed himself deeper and deeper down into this septic tank, feeling around in all the filth, desperate to feel something that might feel like a hand or a foot or a strand of hair. He was bleeding from a cut when he scraped up against a pipe. Moments later, another man, Aldencio Rios, a hot dog vendor, owner of the Dulu hot dog stand, originally from Mexico, barely speaks English. He was lowered in, head first by two other bystanders who were holding on to his feet. A full seven minutes passed before a man emerged from the septic tank, covered, encrusted with the worst things imaginable as he was pulled up out of that hole. And in his strong arms, he clutched the filthy but lifeless body of a two-year-old girl. It was Kylie. She wasn't breathing. She had no pulse. Her little body had turned blue. A woman pushed her way through the crowd, grabbed Kylie's lifeless body, She set her gently on the ground, and without even wiping away the sludge from the girl's face, she attached her lips to Kylie's. Her name was Chelsea Cunningham. She was a rancher from Alberta, happened to be visiting Arizona. Taking deep breaths, she breathed into Kylie's lifeless little lungs, and she continued breathing for the little girl. And after a few moments, she detected for the first time a faint pulse, and then a gasp as the little girl started spewing and spewing out filthy, vile water out of her lungs. And by the time the ambulance arrived, Kylie was breathing on her own. And she was going to make it. Short-term risk for infection, seizure, and asthma. But ultimately, the little girl would be fine. And she's alive today. Friends, Jesus dove in to the septic tank of this world. He dove into the septic tank of your marriage, of your singleness, of your relationships, of your loneliness, of your challenges. He dove into it in order to fish you out. And when you were dead, he put his lips on yours and he resuscitated you and made you alive. He who was clean became unclean for us. The ultimate celibate, the ultimate eunuch so that he could devote himself fully to his master's business, which was the business of rescuing you.
and me. The one who was without a spouse so that he could instead take as his bride his church, giving himself up for her to make her holy, cleaning her by washing with water and presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in his sight. Friends, this is Jesus. He dove in for you. He didn't need to count the cost. He treasured you, and he made you clean so that whether married or single, you might live in his love and serve it in the lives of others. Let's pray.